Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Where do you sit on the idea of free public transit? Researchers have provided a new face for homelessness. Now that Bo Levi Mitchell is a tiger cat, is Dane Evans out the door? Eight straight interest rate hikes from the Bank of Canada. M&M's parks its spokes candies. And want to play some two-pong? The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting discussion at Hamilton City Hall the other day. You would have to find a way to address the revenue shortfalls that you would be foregoing from collecting money in the fare box. Uh, so for 2023, as an example, uh, I think it's about $47 million. That is the voice of Transit Director Maureen Cousin-Heath. They were discussing the idea of free public transit in the community. Can it work? Is there a case to be made? Well, uh, there's no appetite to offer it at the moment, let's just say that, but does the zero-fare idea have some merit? Well, back in 2019, Kansas City, Missouri became the first major city in the U.S. to offer free public transit. Washington, D.C. is going to eliminate bus fares starting this summer. Boston and San Francisco experimenting with this idea as well. And there's numerous Numerous cities throughout Europe that also offer free public transit. Many of these transit agencies found that they were spending almost as much money collecting the fares than they were getting through that fare revenue. Ward 4 Councillor Tammy Huang presented the concept of free public transit in uh, the future at this meeting earlier this week and called it an opportunity to be bold for equity and inclusion. And Councillor Huang joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tammy, good morning. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, why did you feel it was necessary or important to to plant this seed? Well, when we were in the campaign process, actually a really amazing group called Hamilton 350 reached out to a lot of the candidates and essentially posed this question. Would you be willing, should you be elected, to examine the feasibility of free transit? And when I was on the campaign, I said, I would actually like to think about and examine the physical, I mean, sorry, the fiscal viability of how we can offer free transit to our community. So right now we know that the city offers free transit to seniors and yeah. kids 12 and under, which is fantastic. And, and we know it was free during the early stages of the pandemic and many people took advantage of that. But from a financial perspective, from that fiscal analysis, this is $47 million in revenue. Yeah. Uh, can it be done? I'm not sure yet, because at this point, it's asking the question, because when I was thinking about this, and we're in the middle of budget, and we are getting numbers thrown at us every which way, every single department is asking for more because of inflation, because of workforce development challenges. There's a lot, a whole plethora of different challenges and issues about to our taxes. So the question, though, is, what is that number? And so it's something to keep in the back of our minds as we explore what this looks like. And when it comes to that, it's also thinking about alternative revenue models. It's thinking about how are we generating revenue from other parts of the city in order to help offset this. But this also comes back to what are council's priorities for the next four years? And we will be going into a session with the mayor as um, from a council perspective of determining our big strategic directions for this term. 
Let's just set aside the the revenue hit for for a moment. What are the benefits of offering free transit aside from, you know, uh, having people save a little bit of money? Well, I think it just talks about it from several different lenses. There's an equity lens. So looking at our community and providing transit and opportunities to move about this city when budgets are tight, when um, we have many people that are living at or below the poverty line. We have a lot of students. We have a lot of older Hamiltonians that are really pinching their pennies when it comes to this current climate. We're also looking at it from how are we taking cars off the road and ensuring that we can better hit our climate change objectives. We're also looking at this from a just an equalization and being much more of a attractive city for investment because it's about increasing quality of life. It's also around allowing um, employers to signal to employers that we're really focusing on how are we building a better Hamilton for their workforce as well. One tricky part of this is that we know in the years to come, we think, we hope, LRT will come to the table. There is a big cost associated with that as well. Might this idea be shelved for at least a decade? I don't know. I don't think so, though, because I think we're really, like I said, in the middle of a climate crisis. We have, council has identified in 2019 that we have a climate emergency. We also have significant challenges when it comes to encouraging equity amongst our Hamiltonians. We're also looking at just the opportunity of moving people about the city. LRT is definitely that opportunity. It's also ensuring that we're building in more um, commuter behaviors and introducing Hamiltonians to this concept of you don't necessarily always need a car. Um, If we did provide this as a service, this is an opportunity for us to change the way people, people move about the city in a more gentler and um, natural and organic way. Last one for you, and we all have about a minute. Uh, I mentioned a few cities who are doing this or considering doing it. Kansas City, Washington, uh, Boston, San Francisco, of pilot projects. Um, do you feel the need to direct staff to say, hey, contact officials at these cities to find out how they're doing it? Absolutely. But you know what? Our staff are already on top of this because, as you heard, uh, Director Cousin Heath had those numbers ready to go. The fact is, this is not something new. This was a This is a business case that they've kind of come and picked at every couple of years or so. So the fact is our transit staff and our staff are already thinking about how other municipalities are doing this and how this might apply to Hamilton. It's an interesting idea. Councillor Wang, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Rick. Have a great day. You too. That is Tammy Huang, Councillor for Ward 4 in the city of Hamilton. Some studies, I should mention, some studies have shown that transit riders would rather have better reliability, more frequent bus service than zero fare service. So there's that as well. But there are some benefits, obviously, to not paying for public transit. Yes, there is a... There's a, you know, the, the, the balance sheet doesn't work out until you get those other um, aspects of uh, the environment angle, uh, getting people to and from work. If they don't normally have that, uh, you know, avenue to get on a bus because of the cost, yes, it is cheaper than getting into a car. But some people, those marginalized ones, are still having trouble doing so. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We know that homelessness exists in our community, in virtually every community, really. But how we alleviate this issue is exceptionally complex. Uh, one thing's for certain. We, we can't use a cookie-cutter approach to address this. And that's where a nationwide research project called Homelessness Counts is coming in. This team of researchers has gone really coast-to-coast-to-coast, to coast to coast, 28 communities in every province since January of 2021. So they've been doing this for a long time to investigate homelessness. And they're now revisiting some of those communities to discuss their findings and get some feedback. And one of those forums was held yesterday at the Sanderson Center in Brantford. Dr. Cheryl Forchuk is an assistant scientific director with Lawson Health Research Institute in London and is a Brantford resident who is one of the driving forces behind this Homelessness Counts initiative. Dr. Forchuk, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Very good and happy to join you. How would you describe the state of homelessness across Canada? Uh, well, it, it's not. It's definitely not good. I. What one of the things we found is there's been an increase in homelessness uh, across the country, and not only do we go to every province, but also every territory. We found we interviewed 400 people across the country experiencing homelessness, and just under 16 percent of them actually had their first incident of homelessness during the pandemic, uh, which is really a huge increase uh, and also a huge difficulty because navigating homelessness, especially for the first time, is difficult at the best of times. But imagine trying to navigate such a complex system when many places are closed, a lot of care is virtual uh and and you don't understand the system because this is the first time you've encountered homelessness is there or or was there during your meetings with individuals in all these communities um an individual maybe a particular situation that really struck a chord with you oh there were there were numerous situations um we, I mean, we've, you know, you often hear the phrase, people are just a couple of paychecks away from homelessness. And we certainly know more vulnerable people are often um, at risk of homelessness. One of the things we found was it's like there's a wider net now. Uh, there's a broader range of people experiencing homelessness than we've seen, and for different kinds of reasons than we've seen in the past. Like certainly we saw a lot of the run evictions, we talked to people, like a, a number of group homes. In some communities, more than one group home was lost uh, when the real estate um, prices were going up uh, through rent evictions where they were converted into uh, family homes and sold. And so you'd have people who've been with mental or physical handicaps and living there for a decade, suddenly homeless. Um, as, I say, as many as six group homes in a single community being lost. Uh, so that that was unusual. It's not the usual thing you see with homelessness. Uh, similarly, families with children with handicaps, with the schools closed, and uh, trying to support um, kids with with autism, developmental handicaps, etc. We found some of those kids ended up homeless when the families could no could no longer cope. We had uh, older families that had a relative um, with with cognitive issues, with things like Alzheimer's. And then when they were affected, the whole family, uh, adult adult children and parent uh, ended up homeless. And in our sector, when we think of things like family homeless, we're usually thinking of parents and young children. 
uh, we're, this, the system isn't designed for this wide range of problems. And we were very surprised to see such a range of problems. Um, on the good side, uh, we also saw a lot more community mobilization than we have in the past. A lot of grassroots organizations, NIMBYism still exists, not in my backyard. And I would say it's still the prevalent uh, mode uh, when various initiatives are suggested or someone sees someone that looks homeless hanging, hanging around too close to their point of business or uh, residence, they often will call the police. Um, but the first time I saw this one instance, I thought, oh, I'll never see this again. I've been working this field for decades, but I've never seen this. And that was that uh, in one uh, neighborhood, people were noticing people sleeping in their cars overnight, gathered together as a neighborhood and put notes on the car saying, if you need a breakfast, a shower, uh, come to this address between, you know, 9 to 10 or 1030. Uh, and then they would organize, so there'd be a number of neighbors there. And then the next day, a different neighbor. So when I saw it the first time, I thought, well, I will never see that again. That is just wild. I actually, we actually saw it in three communities across the country. Wow. Uh, and none of them knew about the other communities. Uh, we saw a lot of other uh, local initiatives, like people just taking food out to encampments, visiting people, having, um, in some cases, uh, Facebook pages set up neighborhood by neighborhood so they could coordinate their efforts, who was doing what, what day, had weekly meetings in some cases uh, where they would coordinate who was doing what. Uh, we had things in some of the parks and uh, in different communities where they'd have an organized way of leaving food and things. So uh, I, I was, uh, it, things are definitely got a lot worse with homelessness, but I think in many communities, there was at least uh, a bit of hope in that people were seeing neighbors as neighbors, people as people. That is tremendous to hear. And we only had about 90 seconds. And I know a big part of this research project was to fill, you know, the data bucket to get a lot of data to make sure we have, you know, a targeted and measured approach to dealing with homelessness. The question is, what happens next? So we, we are regularly meeting in terms of uh, the federal government representatives. And we are finding that uh, the current estimates are really missing the rural communities, the more remote communities. Uh, we've done some initial work looking at health data uh, because that will include even the smaller communities. We tend to find a lot more people uh, in the ballpark of three times as many people using health data compared to actual homeless data. Uh, we're also looking at what other databases we can add because we, we also know not everybody accesses the healthcare system, but we, but we certainly are showing that um, the the, the current estimates are seriously underestimating the problem. And the, unfortunately, the current funding for people is based on those very low numbers. Well, we know we have uh, a lot of heavy lifting to do to alleviate homelessness in uh, the Hamilton community and in places like Brantford and places across the country. That is for sure. But it is research projects like this that will uh, greatly help move the ball along. Dr. Forchuk, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Dr. Cheryl Forchak is an assistant scientific director at the Lawson Health Research Institutes that is uh, in charge, the driving force of this homelessness initiative. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new sheriff in town. You know, for me, it's exciting, um, but, you know, motivating. Just it's time for me to prove myself to uh, a different organization. 
you know, a different locker room uh, and a different set of fans. Major splash made by the Hamilton Tiger Cats as they signed quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell the other day to a three-year contract. They negotiated, they traded for his exclusive negotiating rights, got the deal done, and now, well, there's there's a ripple effect being felt um, after this move. What happens next with the team in free agency? And many people are asking, well, now what for Dane Evans? Let's bring in the head coach and president of football operations for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, Orlando Steinauer, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Coach O, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Well, maybe we'll start with uh, the elephant in the room, and that's Dane Evans, uh, a quality guy, had an up-and-down year in 2022. Everyone's asking, what is his status going to be? Can you give us an update? Yeah, it's uh, it really hasn't moved um, from the press conference there, Rick. It, it, things are still status quo right now, uh, still shuffling through everything right now, and you know, we, the biggest thing was uh, obviously to get Bo, Bo in and get the, the press conference and the medical and everything and that put behind us. And then we're going to move forward with um, a lot of our free agents. And obviously, as everybody knows, Dane's under contract and, and we love Dane. And these are these are tough things and tough, tough acquisitions. But right now we feel like we're in a we're in a great spot. Since the announcement of Mitchell's signing, um, how many teams have called you about Dane, or have any called? Yeah, I wouldn't. Again, we want. Again, I understand the the ask and the why, but uh, we we wouldn't divulge any of that uh, uh, out of respect for ourselves and for the whole process right now. Like I said, um, we, we you know it's probably no secret that there's teams out there that need quarterbacks and those sorts of things. But as of right now, we have not been contacted. Are you actively hoping to trade Evans to another team to get something for him? Or are you comfortable with having him as a backup? Yeah, like I said, right now, we're if we're comfortable with, with Dane, absolutely. Like, Dane is a guy that's helped us uh, achieve, you know, our excellence and, and, and to get to a point uh, where we've been a sustainable model of winning, you know. And Jeremiah had a lot to do with that. And the quarterback's really go beyond that from from Zach and Henry and from the time since I've been here Rick in 2013 we've had a string of great quarterbacks as CFL fans know the the league operates under a salary cap for every team does the math work and if not do you think he's open to a restructure yeah again those types of, of questions and and comments we're gonna you know I understand the questions but as of right now there, there's no comment on those sorts of things because we haven't had those conversations um, with with Dane or with anybody else. So there's, you know, right now, like I said at the conference, he's a Hamilton Tiger Cat. And, you know, what happens in the near future or even, you know, further down the line, whether that's before free agency, after free agency, um, well after free agency, uh, right now there's just no direct answer to give. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Orlando Steinauer, head coach and president of football operations with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Bo Levi Mitchell, does his arrival in Hamilton impact how you tackle free agency next month? Well, obviously his domino to fall had a, has a been big impact on, um, you know, as you mentioned, the cap, right? You, you just don't know which way you're going to go. But at the same time, you know, free agency is exactly that for a reason. And some people want to test the market and they've earned that. And uh, that's just the way that it's written. So, you know, some people are going to wait and we don't take that as a negative thing. Right. We, we, we take that as it doesn't mean they don't want to be here. They just you know, there's a certain number that we're able to offer the majority of people. And 
sometimes their agents um, are offended. Sometimes they appreciate it. Sometimes they sign right away. But I think as you can kind of see league wide, there's not a ton of signings just rolling off. Now that could change here in the upcoming week, but uh, we're, we're going to remain extremely optimistic that we're going to, we're going to field the team uh, that we really want are looking to uh, in 2023, understanding that it never goes exactly according to plan. After a uh, monster year in 2022 and what looks like a bright future ahead, receiver Tim White is one of the guys on your list as a potential free agent. Is he your top internal free agent priority? Well, top is an interesting word because you're, it's not like you um, – you have this pecking order, like you're actively trying to get deals done with multiple players, obviously on your own team that you can. So just the fact that um, you may get one signed or announced before, say, for example, like you're saying a Tim White doesn't mean that Tim wasn't at at the top or he was in the middle or he was at the bottom. It, it takes two people to get a deal done. Tim is definitely somebody that we want to see back into black and gold in 2023, without a doubt. I'm sure fans want to see that as well. We got just about 20 seconds. Was there any point in time when you thought during this Bo Levi Mitchell negotiation process that, uh, geez, I'm not sure we're going to get this done? Yeah, I think multiple times. You know, I think there's multiple times that you thought that, but I, you know, I just I'm confident in in our vision and what we had to offer, and that doesn't mean that it's always a fit. To be honest with you, um, you know, it's just it was a complete effort from top to bottom, from from ownership down to equipment to, um, you know, just everybody involved to let let everybody know exactly what we were about to put our best foot forward. And then it gave Bo um, enough variables or data points to make an, an educated decision, having never been in our locker room or in the city of Hamilton to do what was best for him and his family. So I wouldn't say that it wouldn't get done, but there's times when you questioned it, for sure. It's been an exciting start to the offseason. Can't wait for uh, June to arrive. It's uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a long wait, that is for sure. But I know there's some work to do between now and then. Coach O, always appreciate your time. Thanks for this. Thank you. Orlando Steinauer, head coach and president of football operations with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Bank of Canada boosting its key interest rate again. Eighth time in a row, this time by 25 basis points. We expect to hold the policy rate at its current level while we assess the impact of the cumulative 425 basis point increase in our policy rate. We've raised rates rapidly, and now it's time to pause and assess whether monetary policy is sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation back to the 2% target. That is Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem as the central bank's key interest rate now at 4.5%, the highest level since 2007. Pedro Antunes is the chief economist at the Conference Board of Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Pedro, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Rick. Good morning to you. This, uh, as as mentioned by Mr. Macklem, this is probably the last rate hike of the year. Uh, it, that That is certainly good news, especially for those who are carrying some debt of a variable rate mortgage. Um, is is this the last one in a that we're going to see in a long time? Well, uh, let's hope. Let's hope. And it depends <laughs> yeah. really on, just as Mr. Uh, Macklem pointed out, on whether the uh, policy is working, whether the high, very high interest rates that we have right now uh, will suffice to get inflation down. And I have to say that Central Bank in Canada certainly has control over some aspects that uh, drive inflation and, you know, and they're having success. We're seeing essentially 
consumer spending really flattening out in the last half of last year and into the start of this year. Uh, we have, of course, seen housing prices really take a hit uh, over the last year as well, and, and in part due to the, the higher rates and the higher mortgage uh, financing costs. So they're having success on that front. Uh, the concerns, of course, come in from those things that we can't control necessarily within our borders, uh, and that is, you know, kind of global commodity prices, uh, which affect food and transportation costs. Uh, these kinds of issues are a little bit outside of the bank's controls. But I think globally we are seeing inflation heading in the right direction. There's a lot of good um how should I say, things happening that, that are pushing inflation down. It, it's a little slow on the food front, uh, but hopefully uh, we will see that policy rate held where it is and then perhaps see it decline into next year. There were a few economists uh, who were thinking that uh, they, they didn't think the Bank of Canada was going to raise the key interest rate again because we're already feeling the pinch. We're at, uh, you know, for many people at the breaking point and adding a little more pain to many pocketbooks might not be the right move. Do you agree with what the Bank of Canada has done here? I think the bank could have held at four percent. I think they're trying to be. This is kind of the the issue around credibility. Uh, you know, the, the bank lost credibility by not raising rates perhaps quickly quickly enough back in late two thousand and one, two thousand and two. They only started raising rates in in March, uh, as you as you mentioned, and perhaps that was a little bit bit behind the behind the curve or behind the eight ball. So, um, you know, I think this. 25 basis points is not a whole lot at the, you know, at the margin here. Certainly it's adding pain, but it's, it's just a small take up. And I think it's more around, you know, being convincing around the fact that they are going to get inflation down. And that's really important because if people believe that inflation is going to be at 2% in 24, 25, then the expectations around wage hikes, et cetera, uh, these are the things that, uh, you know, the bank is, is hoping to settle in at a, at a, at a lower level because we have seen wages, you know, rising up a, a little, not as quickly as inflation, but trying to catch up to the inflation numbers, which can get into that vicious cycle of wage hikes, price hikes, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Pedro, we have about 45 seconds. The Bank of Canada says the risk of a severe global downturn seems to have been avoided. Seems to be that that notion has seemed to decline over the last number of months. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I think that's really related to the fact that uh, commodity prices have come back down to pre-war levels. It's really important for Europe in particular, which, uh, you know, essentially had gas and heating prices five times what they were prior to the war, five times higher. Those have come back down to normal. So hopefully uh, this lower inflation will will help uh, consumers in, in many parts of the world. That would be good news for sure. Pedro, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. That's Pedro Antunes, Chief Economist at the Conference Board of Canada. Another rate hike. And it seems to be, at least Governor Tiff Macklem intimated yesterday, this should be the last one at least for the rest of this year, depending on how inflation goes. But a uh, good sign going forward that uh, we won't see another rate hike, at least for the next little while. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The maker of M&M's making a surprise announcement the other day saying it's pausing the use of its polarizing spokes candies. You know, the the cartoony characters that are actually M&Ms in kind of human form. Uh, so they sent out a tweet the other day, America, let's talk. In the last year, we've made some changes to our beloved spokes candies. We weren't sure if anyone would even notice, and we definitely didn't think it would break the Internet. But now we get it. Even a candy's shoes can be polarizing. 
which was the last thing M&M's wanted since we're all about bringing people together. Therefore, we have decided to take an indefinite pause from the spokes candies. In their place, we are proud to introduce a spokesperson American can agree on, the beloved Maya Rudolph. We are confident Miss Rudolph will champion the power of fun to create a world where everyone feels they belong. So you're probably thinking, well, what, what the heck is going on? Well, it wasn't too long ago that M&M's changed the appearance of some of the M&M candies. The green candy, for instance, had uh, go-go boots on and now has flats. The, I think it was the brown M&M had high heels and now it's a, I guess, a, a, a less of a high-heeled shoe. So what's going on and why... Press the pause button on these characters. Jane Michelle Clark is a business professor at York University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ms. Clark, how are you today? Great, thank you. And thank you for having me on the show today. Yeah, thanks for coming on. What do you make of this uh, this decision by the maker of M&M's? Jane Michelle? Are you able to hear me? Oh, there you are. Yeah. I was just asking, what do you make of this story? Oh, I think we're having a little bit of trouble with Zoomaroni. We'll reconnect with Jane Michelle Clark, adjunct professor at York University in the Skullick School of Business. There was another tweet that was sent out. I'll read that to you in a matter of minutes. This is coming from not necessarily a competitor, but another business in the food world. That would be A&W. And, well, if we lose Ms. Clark, I'll definitely be reading that tweet right away. <laughs> but this is a very interesting story because we are... I'm not sure what the term is. Other the, the word desexifying comes to mind. I'm not even sure that's a real word. But this is the sense that I get. There's clearly male and female M&Ms. And uh, we have Jane Michelle Clark back on the line here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jane Michelle was just asking, what do you make of the story out of M&Ms? I make a lot of things out of it. Initially, when I heard, and thank you for having me on the show this morning. When I heard the announcement initially, I was surprised and I'm also not surprised that the switch caused such a lot of buzz, especially since it came one week after Catherine Slight, who is the chief growth officer at Mars Wrigley, as you probably know, reaffirmed its global commitment to creating a brand, and I think she said a world where everybody felt included. You know, she talked about adding emphasis on the ampersand to reinforce the idea of inclusion. She talked about her beloved or their beloved characters and talked about the nuanced shapes, personalities, all the different things that uh, they've been doing so very, very well over the years. Um, They've introduced new characters. They've done some brilliant things. And you talked about the new shapes and sizes. You also, or they also, introduced an all-female package very recently that uh, caused a little bit of a stir as well as part of it. So when I heard the announcement that they were moving away from these beloved characters, characters that have been in use since the early 50s, I was originally surprised. And then I realized what they were doing. They were doing it to protect the brand. The response on social media has been overwhelmingly negative. You know, whatever messages that have come across, I've seen just the negative ones. Um, Is this going to have an impact on business? Well, perhaps initially, but let's look at it from their perspective. And when you say business, M&M's has been the number one candy brand in North America for decades. They're in 100 countries now. They have got a very strong tagline that's built built on the melt in your mouth, not in your hands, which is part of their point of distinction. So will it hurt business? Perhaps they'll take a small hit, but if you look at the stats in terms of December 2022, they were the most popular brand in candy with 79% of the people saying positive things. 
Stivo was only at 67. Will it hurt the brand? Possibly. But let's look at why they're doing it. They've had some great things they've been doing in terms of these characters. They've become part of our life. You know, you see the little M&M seeing Santa at Christmas time and you get all excited. But in the face of having somebody attacking these beloved characters repeatedly, and I think possibly to advance his own agenda, what they did might have been an opportunity for them to protect the brand, to protect those characters against Tucker Carlson's attack. They've made some changes. They've got some people that were upset about the shoes and a few other things. But how much of that was fueled by negative things in the press? So for a brand that has been so loved and a part of our heritage for so long to be constantly under attack, to take them out of the spotlight temporarily might be the smartest thing they could have done. Not what I thought initially, but when I was thinking about it this morning, getting ready for the show, I thought, I bet you that's what they're doing. Yeah, I'm sure they'll come back at some point. Not sure when. Uh, Jay Michelle, we'll have to leave her conversation there. Maybe we'll pick it up when they do return. But I appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. Jay Michelle Clark is an adjunct professor in the Skullick School of Business at York University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, this is some pretty exciting news. When was the last time you invented something? <laughs> like never, if it's my if it's my case. Well, there's a uh, Waterloo-based company now that's innovating the game of table tennis, ping pong, by using not one, but two paddles. Ben Battaglia is the co-founder of Two Pong. He's also a recreation and sports business student at the University of Waterloo and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Ben, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is pretty exciting. Tell us about Tupong. Yeah, I mean, as as you mentioned, it's uh it's a brand new twist on I'd say the traditional game of table tennis. It's using the same surface, the same standard table you would use in the same ball. However, instead of holding just one paddle in your hands, you're actually wearing two paddles on your hands like a glove. Um, and and it's amazing to be able to involve both sides of your body. Uh, to be able to to work on your your skill and your coordination with your non-dominant hand and your non-dominant side of your body, I think it's pretty cool. How did this idea start? Where did it come from? Well, it all started uh, with the very first lockdown here in Ontario from the COVID-19 virus. And I was back at home in Barrie, Ontario, at my family home. We have a ping pong table in our basement. And my dad and my brother and I, we would, we would have basically nightly games uh, every day. And it, it started from there. Just we ended up seeing a few different TikToks and kind of viral videos of people playing on their home tables, but using non-conventional paddles like pots and pans and broomsticks and different household objects. So we thought, well, why, why don't we give that a go? We started picking up some different household objects to try to play ping pong. And eventually we ended up taping paddles kind of around our hands and, and, and swinging around and, and, and having fun like that. And, and that's kind of where the idea started was just fooling around in the basement. What was the most ridiculous household item you tried to play with? Well, at one point I was playing with a, uh, a solid dumbbell. I thought that was pretty funny. It was <laughs> a pretty small surface area, but I was trying to hit with a dumbbell. Uh, I used a balance board at one point. Um, there's a, a, a wooden spoon was, was picked up from the kitchen. So a few different things. And, uh, I, I know you referenced TikTok. Were you, were you guys doing TikTok videos with all these strange apparatus? Well, I, no, I didn't have much experience making or filming any kind of videos or really using TikTok. I was just really a, a, a user uh, scrolling my homepage and seeing these videos. Hmm. And we never really set up a camera and filmed anything until we ended up taping the paddles kind of around our hands and, and playing like that. And, 
when, when we when my dad and I were, were were playing and we looked at each other, we said, "Holy cow! I I can't believe how much we're moving, how much we're we're engaged, and we're getting low and athletic." It was it was really cool. Ben Battaglia is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ben is the co-founder of Two Pong, a new twist to table tennis or uh, ping pong. Uh, you can check out the website at twopong.com. That's the number two pong.com. Are the rules the same as table tennis? Yeah, actually, the rules follow pretty similar to table tennis. However, we have we have two special rules that make Two Pong unique. The first one is on the serving. Your Each player gets two serves. Your first serve can come from whichever hand you like to start with, whether that's your right or your left, but your second serve must come from the opposite hand. So you must engage both hands on each of those serves before passing the ball to the next player for his two serves. So that's the one special rule. The second rule is if the ball hits the net, whether it's on a serve or during a rally, the opponent can let the ball bounce twice on his side before playing that next shot. And I just found that made the rallies go a little bit longer just because without the handle on a ping pong paddle, you just don't have that extra reach. So with allowing that second bounce when it hits the net, just makes the rallies go on a little bit longer and kind of adds more flow to the game. I'm picturing you try to serve the ball. Both of your hands are in gloves with paddles on them. What's the trick to doing that? There's a couple different ways to serve it. Um, obviously, still being so new and we're still working th- through different things, I'm always open to different ideas. But for now, I like to uh, either do two different things. One is sandwich the ball in between your two paddles and then do a light toss up in the air and hit it with your with your hand that you're hitting, serving with. The second one is to hold one of your hands flat and balance the ball on top and do a light toss as well and then hit it with the opposite hand. Wow. How did you get these paddles designed and manufactured? Yeah, well, we came up with this idea, like I said, right in the middle of COVID uh, and when everything was locked down and closed down. Uh, so really, it was just doing some Google researching, and uh, we traced back, uh, you know, through different channels and through different connections, where we ended up looking overseas, uh, getting them manufactured and made, and we ended up having some great Zoom call discussions with uh, our manufacturer, and just by basically explaining the vision and our idea of what we had with these paddles taped around our hand, by explaining, you know, we we would want a mitt. Uh, we want a, a paddle-like surface on the front that hits similar to a ping-pong paddle. Um, we were able to come up with this product through a different, uh, a couple different prototypes and uh, samples. We've got about uh, 30 seconds. I'm sure our listeners can go online to twopong.com and get their own paddles. How is business going? Sure. Uh, business is going fantastic. We just launched in May of 2022, so we're still just under a year old. And uh, really, I think still trying to balance my schoolwork and, uh, and, and my business at the same time. So it's, it's difficult, but it's, very, uh, it's, it's a great time doing this with my dad and going through this journey, learning from him, picking up on different business tips. And uh, I, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to the future for, for what we can do with Tupong. Yeah, this is a great idea. Ben, congrats on this. Best of luck with it. Thanks so much, Rick. I appreciate it. That's Ben Battaglia, co-founder of Two Pong, a new twist on table tennis. You can find them online, the number two, twopong.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.